0: You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T REMNANT to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of REMNANT Radio. Today, we've got Alyssa Childers with us. We're talking about her new book, Live Your Truth. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you guys got a really cool episode for you today before we dive into it i want to remind you remnant radio is crowdfunded there are links in the description if you want to support the channel you can give a one-time gift on paypal or a reoccurring gift on patreon if you choose to give on patreon you get access to extra content sometimes extended interviews sometimes you got live q a's up there uh, book clubs those kinds of things can take place over on patreon so if you want to support uh you get a little little cool thank you gift over there on patreon if you choose to do so Uh, i want to introduce you to my partner in crime michael roundtree over in oklahoma michael how are you doing buddy
1: i am doing well doing really well well over here in oklahoma and excited about this interview with elisa and just finished her book yesterday just in time for this interview live your truth and other lies exposing popular deceptions uh, that make us anxious exhausted and my kindle book is cutting off the edge of the title sorry elisa whatever came after exhausted i'm sure it was awesome (laughs) (laughs) but the main book title live your Truth and other lies and so it's uh it's responding to the lies of culture and I was telling her uh before the show that just as uh as a pastor as a preacher, I want to exegete the scripture, I also want to exegete my culture and and this book really helped me do uh do that and was grateful and marketed it all up with the different quotes from uh popular writers, many of whom are saying, you know I'm a Christian being published by Christian authors, and yet they're writing things that depart from historic Christianity, and yet millions of people are gobbling this up. So this is a really important episode for us. Elisa, it's a, uh, a joy, privilege to have you on the show. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with you and your ministry, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how people can be connected with you.
2: Oh, always great to be back with you guys. Um, yeah, so basically, I... I don't know. What do I do? <laughs> I, I write. I, I don't know how this all happened, but I was a musician primarily for most of my life. But now I have a podcast and a YouTube channel. It's the Elisa Childers podcast. And I write books and I speak basically about Christian worldview, but kind of focusing on a biblical response to the movement of progressive Christianity. So uh, all the links and information is at elisachilders.com. dot com.
0: Alisa, tell us a little bit about this book um, and, and tell us about how it's different from the other book that you've, you've written on that you've come on to talk to us about. You've engaged a lot of with progressive Christianity and you've engaged a lot with the kind of deconstructing uh, of the faith uh, and, and those who are proponents of that. And you engage with that on your YouTube channel. You've come on here uh, with us and talked about Brian Zahn and Pete Enns, Richard Rohr. Uh, you've come on and talked uh, about your previous book. How are these two books different?
2: So the first book, Another Gospel, is really what I think I would call a theological memoir. So it's the story of me walking through a faith crisis that was facilitated in a, a church that would eventually go on to identify itself as a progressive Christian community. So it was really progressive Christianity that facilitated a faith crisis that I had. And so in that book, we're sort of walking through that journey, looking at the questions I asked, where I looked for answers, and then along the way, interacting with the claims of progressive Christianity as they emerge through the authors that lead the movement and their podcasts and blogs and that sort of thing. And then Live Your Truth and Other Lies is a book that was sort of born out of a blog post that I wrote. Uh, several years ago, actually before I wrote the book Another Gospel. So I'd written this review of a book written by Rachel Hollis called Girl, Wash Your Face. At the time, it was like the number one best-selling book across all genres. And it was written by a self-professed Christian. It was published on a Christian publishing house. People were doing Bible studies based on this book. And people started emailing me saying, you know, can you respond to this book? And I thought, well, I'll, I'll read it and do a review. Well, that review went viral. It had like a couple million views in the first few weeks of of putting it out. And that's really what got me the book deal to write another gospel. And so, but I, I wanted to write about that first, but in the meantime, I was doing this talk at women's conferences sort of based on some of the lies that were in that book and other books that are sort of saying this the same sort of thing. And so when it came time to think about what to write for the second book, it was kind of a no-brainer in that I'd already been giving this talk at conferences and I already had a, a viral blog post that was sort of along the same lines. And so we just expanded that out into a book and looked at more than just one or two of the of the sort of lies that are promoted in that Christian-ish self-help type of space and, mm-hmm. and just expand that out into other lies we really believe about ourselves.
1: Okay. Wow. Well, one of the things you talk about in this book is, and I'm going to quote uh, Morgan Ferrer. She talks about linguistic theft, and that's going to be really relevant to this question I'm about to ask, but she defines linguistic theft, and and you quote her in your book, as purposefully hijacking words, changing their definitions, and then using those same words as tools of propaganda. So there's a lot of just definition changing, and you walk through in your book just some of the words that are changing definition culturally, and uh, as well as biblically, theologically, these different uh, these words shifting their meaning. Can you just maybe unpack that for us, and uh, and the relevance for us today, and just understanding just really what's happening in our culture
2: right so uh yeah that quote is from hillary morgan frere who is the general editor and main author of the mama bear apologetics books and she kind of came up with this idea calling it linguistic theft where people take these words repackage them and then use them as propaganda and what i began to notice as well is that some you know to say that they're using it as propaganda implies that's their intention which i think is certainly true in a lot of cases but there's also a lot of cases where people are doing this unintentionally, they're actually just, they have a completely different understanding of a word than maybe somebody else has. And so that's where we end up talking past each other. So just a simple one would be to take the word tolerance, right? The word tolerance classically means that you disagree with somebody, but you respect their right to dis, you know, to have their say, right? That's kind of what mm-hmm. tolerance means. And it actually diff. It requires, by its very definition and nature, that there is disagreement, right? Because that's why you tolerate somebody is because you disagree with them. But in our culture, however, the word tolerance doesn't mean that. It means that you uh, have to sort of affirm and even celebrate someone else's opinion. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that that I sort of touch on in the book. I think. The rejection of absolute truth, especially when it would come to words. Uh, you know, of course, this goes back to '60s philosopher Jacques Derrida, who's referred to as the father of deconstruction. He didn't think objective meaning could be communicated with words. So for him, the intent of the author had no more bearing on what the words mean than the interpretation of the hearer. And this is what people are doing all over the place, right? In the deconstruction movement, they're doing with the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so we're using words in all these different kinds of ways which causes, it can cause a few different things to happen. First, it can just cause a lot of hostility in conversations because people are having a conversation about the same word, but they're meaning two different things by it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can also really sort of conceal the truth because people can actually, when they do it intentionally, they can actually be deceptive by using a word, knowing you think it means one thing, but they mean it in a different way. And they're using language to actually persuade people to their view, but they're doing it in a way that's very deceptive. And I think we see that happen a lot in our culture as well, especially among these pop-level influencers that are so, they're so deeply embedded in people's lives because people are gonna go to their social media community to learn how to make everything but from banana bread to how to, you know, parent their kids well, to getting advice on what it means to be a Christian. And so it's like all these different aspects of life, they're being discipled by social media celebrities. And oftentimes these celebrities claim to be Christians, but what they're saying turns out to be not Christian at all, but they're using a lot of the same language. So people think that it is.
0: Do you think that this is even heightened because i mean certainly there's a philosophical system of like postmodernism, deconstruction redefinition that kind of like seeps into culture but but even as the church we've 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 based our bible studies around not even like hey let's study what the text says and its commands and imperatives on our lives but we've really just embraced a reader's response theory and said you know what does this text mean to you do you mean do you think that the church has really kind of heightened the idea that your personal interpretation reigns supreme um with just modern evangelicalism? Is that a is that a product of, you know, pulling away from theological robustness, catechism, those kind of things? Or is it really an infiltration of these philosophical systems into the church?
2: That's a great question. I could only take a guess, but I mean it's maybe a little bit of both, but I I definitely see how it would be really easy to make a connection to the deconstruction of like a, you know, like Derrida, Derridian kind of deconstruction to how people interpret their Bibles today. Uh, For example, in progressive Christianity, in a lot of these pop-level social media influencers who claim to be Christians, they will just accept lots of different interpretations as valid. Like, well, that's just your interpretation, that's yours, here's mine. And I think what, and, and this kind of shocks people sometimes, when I go and speak, I'll say There's only one correct interpretation of every single Bible verse, and people don't realize that. They're actually, even in the church, they're shocked by that. Now, I I am always clear to say I don't claim to know what each and every single one of them are. I am probably wrong about a few, for sure. I'm definitely wrong about a few. But the goal of Christians should be to try to understand the intent of the author first, and so a lot of churches and a lot of Christians misunderstand the difference between interpretation and application for example like you just mentioned they're going immediately to application but also they're giving it a little postmodern spin probably unintentionally by saying what does this mean to me what what would be a better approach is to first say first of all what is actually just being said then you interpret what does this mean what did it mean to the original then you can maybe think about how that might apply to you because there can be lots of different applications, but they're not going to be different meanings. And so I do think that there's this unintentional influence from postmodernism, and especially through that vein of Derrida and others like Foucault and some that were just rejecting the objective truth of reality or that this can be known or communicated in any meaningful sense, to where we're sort of just left with, well, if nobody can actually know it, then I'm just going to try to understand it the best I can according to, you know, what works for me or what seems to give my life more peace or what makes me feel good when I'm reading it. And um, that's a really dangerous way to interpret the Bible because then we're just going to end up with a God created in our own image rather than us having to surrender our, you know, presuppositions and opinions and preferences to Scripture. These are two radically different approaches.
0: Hey, Michael you're muted buddy
1: yes i muted myself sorry uh between uh that was really helpful for me but i had some great gestures there for those who are watching this visually uh, <laughs> uh between just postmodernism and the deconstruction movement and just seeing that linkage of connection of linguistic theft where some are redefining words such as tolerance and love and hate and bigot and justice and oppression and trauma and so on i mean if you ever noticed how like trauma mm-hmm. is now like i i ran into a I, or I, I ran into i i don't know had a bad encounter with somebody today at work or something uh, anyway but we we redefine these words but you see the same thing with and you talk about this in your book with resurrection and incarnation and inspiration and these words, they'll use Christian words, pull Christians in, and then completely change the meanings. This is just a, a real deception to watch out for. What I'd like to maybe have us transition to, Elisa, would be some of the individual lies that you begin walking through in your book. And um, with maybe just starting with this one, you are enough. I have a couple of quotes here from, um, one is from Rachel Hollis and the other from Jen Hatmaker, uh, both claim to be Christians and speaking from that position and that worldview and uh, and sell books to millions of Christians. So uh, here's Rachel Hollis. She says, I studied the gospel and finally grasped the divine knowledge that I'm loved and worthy and enough as I, just as I am. And then Jen Hatmaker, you deserve goodness. And so these quotes are taken from your books. You're quoting them. Uh, but all of that kind of falling under the umbrella of you are enough. Uh, Talk to us maybe just a little bit about those quotes and how they compare to a biblical worldview.
2: Right. Well, that Rachel Hollis one is particularly interesting because there's some truth in it, right? She says, "'I studied Mm -hmm. the gospel and discovered that I'm worthy and good and enough as I am.'" And so there's a sense in which Christians can say, yes, every human being that's ever been made has been made in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, we do have an inherent dignity and value and worth. I I mean, this is why we know racism is wrong. This is why we know murder and abortion is wrong, because the, mm-hmm. these are human lives that are made in the image of God. But what people often skip over is Genesis 3, where we have the fall, where that image gets distorted by sin. And so therefore, we need something outside of ourselves to bring redemption and reconciliation between sinful humanity and a holy God. Whereas in so much of this self-help literature, they just skip right over Genesis 3, and they just want to affirm that God Mm -hmm. made you good, which we affirm, too. He called it good. But then, that, then something happened, though. And that image got distorted. Evil and sin was ushered into the world. And from Romans 5, we know that sin and death spread to all men through Adam, mm-hmm. through one man, right? We know that spread to all men. And so we, we can't just come to God and say, hey, I'm worthy enough just as I am. Now, we can come to God just as we are. See, there's that language. So much of that language sounds right. Certainly, we come to God just as we are. But we recognize Mm -hmm. that something needs to change. And I think this is the thing about when people say, I am enough, I get where they're coming from. There are a lot of people who have been told lies about themselves growing up. They've been told, you're worth nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. You know, just lies people tell you about yourself. And the temptation Mm -hmm. can be to want to say something positive like you you know you're enough just as you are. And I get it. I get why you'd want to say that, but here's there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, there's a problem just philosophically from a common sense perspective. What you're doing when you tell somebody that is you're actually putting a great burden on their shoulders by saying whatever problem you're having, uh, whatever inside you is broken, you have to fix it all by yourself with just the tools you have inside yourself. Yeah, that's
0: not good news.
2: A lot of pressure. Yeah, that's not good news. Um, Ali Bastecki wrote a book called You're Not Enough and That's Okay. And in that book, I quote her in mine. She says the self can't both be the problem and the solution, right? If you've got these problems that are coming out of your own insecurities and your own fallenness, you can't fix that by yourself. So we're kind of, you know, we're we're putting a burden on people. But then there's a spiritual problem with that, too. And that's that. While the world would tell you that you're enough, you know, you have everything you need inside of yourself. There's nothing outside of you that you need to make you whole, or healed, or complete, or whatever it might be. The Bible actually says that there is something outside of you that you actually don't just you you know want to be made whole, but you actually need it for your eternal you know destination, right? The, so this has eternal consequences. That we come to Christ knowing that we are not enough. And if you just substitute the word enough for the word righteous, right? So Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, accomplished that righteousness, and then the Bible talks about when we're in Christ, his righteousness gets imputed onto us. So what I like to say Mm -hmm. about the I am enough thing is you're not enough, but Jesus is enough. And that's good news because when you're in Christ, enoughness gets put on you so that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see Um, all the sin and all that. He sees the righteousness or the enoughness that Jesus accomplished. Um, But the thing is, though, is this is only going to be good news if we know that we need it, if we know that we're sinners. And I think that is the number one message that's being pumped at us through our social media platforms, through our streaming platforms, is this message of you're perfect just as you are, you're enough all by yourself. You just need to dig down inside yourself and find the liquid gold inside of there. That's Glennon Doyle's way of putting it. Oh. But we know biblically this is not true. We actually need something outside of ourselves. We need Jesus. And, and that's good news if you know you need it. But if you don't think you need it, then it's sort of a burden because you're like, well, I don't want to follow this Jesus guy. I want to do things my way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and that's that. why it's so important to have that law gospel distinction of this is the command. This is the requirement that is to inherit eternal life. Also, you're never going to make that. Uh, but over here, you have this good news of this guy who did, and there needs to be a substitutionary work that takes place where Christ's record is given to us and our record is is given to him. Um, so that that it's intrinsic within the Christian message. But, but again, I think what you're touching on is you're touching on these half-truths, and they're, they are half-truths in such a way that they become anti-truths right? Because they keep you stuck into a system. If, if you have the law that says, hey, this is the, the standard that will inherit eternal life, um, and you have to meet the standard, that standard In the christian worldview is absolutely so high it is unattainable by fallen man right it just can't be done and and then to dumb it down to the point where it says hey you're enough to meet the standard it requires them never to look outside of themselves for salvation they don't have to go extra and find the righteousness that exists outside of them so uh law gospel distinction is extremely extremely important you know we're talking through some of these kind of like cultural one-liners michael just mentioned you are enough what about this one love is love this is one that gets thrown around certainly in the media quite a bit you want to you wanna take a stab at love is love
2: sure yeah so i think the way i word this in the book is um oh, i can't remember now love has no butts or something like that because this is the cultural definition of love right and it's very mm-hmm. similar to the cultural definition of tolerance which would say you know, you have to celebrate and affirm someone else's opinion. Well, with love, the cultural definition, you have to celebrate and affirm everything about that person. You have to celebrate their ideas, their behaviors, what they think is right and wrong. And, it, and if you don't, you're not loving. And so what I think a lot of people need to understand is that where our culture is coming from, they really do understand these definitions this way. But biblically, of course, we know God is love. It's one of his attributes. And then, you know, of course, Paul fleshes this out for us in the famous 1 Corinthians 13 passage, love is patient, love is kind. This is how love looks when you're practicing love. But he goes on to say, love cannot rejoice in wrongdoing. So that assumes a few things in there. A, A, that wrong, you know, what is right and wrong exists and can be known, right? And we can't rejoice in it and still call it love. And then he goes on to say, love rejoices in the truth. So love and truth are really Mm -hmm. inseparable biblical. And so I I brought up the example in the book of, uh, in Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, where her story is essentially that she left her husband, Now he had been unfaithful, and she'd written books about that, but they were trying to, you know, patch things up. But then she ends up falling in love with a woman in the middle of that and then decides to leave her husband and marry the woman. And, you know, they, they're, uh, they have a podcast now. It's just, you know, it's a whole big deal. Um, but she came from a more conservative sort of church environment. And somebody had written her a letter and said, hey, I see your love for Abby and I, it looks good to me, but I don't know how to reconcile that with my Christianity. It makes me feel like I have to choose between my religion and my friend. And what was so interesting is that the letter that Glennon wrote back to her, she actually said, thank you for being intellectually honest. That's exactly what you have to do. You, if you," She said, if you don't uh, affirm me, you don't love me. If you don't vote in a way that makes my family have you know, all the right. things we want to have, then you don't love me. So thank you for being honest. You do have to choose between your religion and loving me. Now, what's so fascinating about that, and I talk about this in the book, is that She's basically saying that her definition of love only goes one way because she certainly expects her friend to change what she thinks about things. She's not accepting her uh, the way she lives or wants to believe. And so she's doing this absolute bait and switch where she's saying, yes, you do not love me if you don't fully affirm me, but she's not fully affirming her friend's opinions. And so it's really bizarre how these things really only go one way, but that's right, really what right. that and that's the thing, too, about something like love is love. We talk about, you know, those signs that started to pop up on lawns in 2020 of, you know, uh, love is love, science is real or whatever they were. They, they were several when we talk about them in the book. But love is love. These slogans don't mean just literally love is love. That's not what it means. Um, just like the term Black Lives Matter doesn't just mean that black lives have value, right? Everybody affirm, would hopefully everybody would affirm that, but there's, or even make America great Everyone again, right? Everyone here that's, does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Make America great again is another, you know, phrase that there's, there's ideologies behind these phrases. There's an ideology mm-hmm. behind the phrase love is love right? Um, And so it it doesn't mean, it means affirming a a cultural sexual ethic. That's what that phrase in its context actually means. But they're using language, right? They're just saying, this is what we're defining as love. And so what Christian doesn't want to affirm love, right? We want to affirm love. We want to be loving, but we have to understand that people are, they're just radically redefining these words.
1: Right. Well, but one thing I like about what you said, Elisa, was that you appealed to the Scripture, an external authority. Uh, you appeal to God and to the Scripture, which for the Christian is as evangelicals who believe God is the authority and believe in the inerrant and inspired and authoritative word of God, we we go to this place for our authority, and we're bewildered by this world that is starting to question everything. And, and another book that this kind of makes me think of is uh, by Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern yeah. Self, and he has a, a companion book to it, The Strange New World. Uh, but he talks about just how from modernism to postmodernism in this uh, this stage of shift that we're living through where you used to have this this authoritative structure of government and church and family and now as these are disassembling even body i mean people just took it as a as a fact that like well my body says i'm a male or my body says i'm a female so it, it was these realities are what define my reality. But but now, and even in that love is love quote, everything is in here. It's I am my own authority. And this really, uh, what was that? You had an A.W. Tozer quote that everybody has inside of them, both a cross and a throne. And in order... Uh, how, what is the exact quote? Do you have it, Elisa? Oh. I, I'm asking. I'm asking you to remember a precise quote. Like we have, but basically, it's we all have a cross and a throne inside of our heart, and we start out on the throne of our heart. And the way we get off is by getting on the cross. But the whole point is, it's the crucifixion of self in order to elevate God to place Him on the throne. But what society is doing is actually taking that throne. Um, why don't we hop into another one here? Uh, and this one's about authenticity. And Brene Brown has been extremely popular. Uh, she says she comes from a Christian background. If I remember from your book, it was Episcopal uh, is a church that she either belonged or belongs to. And uh, if I remember right, she got famous from that TED talk that she did on shame and intimacy and vulnerability. Uh, but here's her quote. And uh, she says, true belonging is, uh, and, and by the way, this quote is to really speak into that Authenticity is everything value within our culture. She says, true belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world and find sacredness in both being a part of something and standing alone in the wilderness. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. So again, you see that sort of Truman would call it as, as, as what others, that expressive individualism and that it's, that's truth is just rooted in here and how I express, but maybe, maybe you could respond to this quote because some, some people would say you guys are just being too harsh. I mean, Brene Brown, this is, this is good. Like they're, There's a truth to the fact that I should be able to express who I am and to do so authentically. And Christians of all people should care about authenticity. So, Elisa, how would you respond to somebody who says, yeah, I think you're just being too harsh on Brene Brown here. I think you're being too harsh on this authenticity uh, value within our culture. Christians should be embracing this, not denying it.
2: Well, again, words, right? Because words. Yes, Christians should be (laughs) the most authentic people if we mean by authenticity, what it's classically meant, which is being genuine, not being fake, right? Yes, Christians uh-huh. should be most authentic people. We shouldn't be showing up to church on Sunday pretending we have it all together and shining each other on about, you know, our victorious and wonderful lives, right? We need to be <laughs> confessing our sins to each other, being honest about our struggles and our difficulties so we can walk with each other and disciple each other and and all of that stuff, yes, but that's not what the word authenticity means in our culture. And I think the Brené Brown quote demonstrates this because what she says is something that is largely embraced in our culture, and that's that what authenticity really means is that you don't have to change anything about yourself. And so uh, the culture yeah. would would see it this way. You know, do some introspection, dig down inside your heart, and, and identify what your deepest desires are uh, what do you want? I remember going to a a more progressive counselor years and years ago when I was in that world a little bit. And she, she asked me, she's like, what do you want? And I kept thinking like, why is she, what, what is she, what do I want? I don't know. What do you mean? Like, I didn't even get what she was talking about, but I get it now because the culture is so fixated on discovering what your deepest desires are because those, according to culture is kind of the meaning of life, right? I have a whole Mm -hmm. chapter on that. Mm -hmm. wants me to be happy and fulfilled, like that's the main goal of life. So it's kind of built on that. But also it's built on the idea that humans are inherently good, right? You are enough, you're perfect just as you are, there's nothing inside you that needs to change. Therefore, to be authentic, what you need to do is identify your deepest desires, name them, proclaim them, make them your actual identity, and then expect everybody else to affirm and proclaim that about you too. Now that sounds good and it would work if what you were going to find in there was inherently good, right? If the Bible Mm -hmm. got that wrong and humans were inherently good, then you would want to just live out your most true, authentic self. But I was on a radio show the other day with Janet Parshall. I don't know if you guys are familiar with her. And she said the greatest line that I wish I would have thought of and put in the book. But she said, Lord, save me from my true, authentic self. And I was like, Hmm. that's it right there, right? So the Christian story is kind of the opposite according to the Bible and Christianity, when you do some deep soul searching and you maybe are able to identify what your deepest longings and desires are, many of those are actually going to contradict what is actually objectively morally good. And so therefore the Bible talks about repentance, right? We actually have to change those things. We have to turn from those things, put off the old man, die to ourselves, deny our deepest desires. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to follow after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. So according to Christianity, those deepest desires are probably going to be disordered and they need to be ordered correctly and surrendered to, the, to God. And that's when we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We go on that road of sanctification so really it's holiness should be the main point for Christians, not necessarily the cultural definition of authenticity the the best way to be authentic to be real is to be real about what's wrong with you and mm-hmm. what needs fixed and changed and then go on that process of sanctification where we're made more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus every day and but but it's just like two completely different worldviews and approaches to one simple word authenticity which sounds good that's the thing too about all these words is they sound so positive and and they've turned a lot of the culture has turned a lot of really negative things into positive things in the book we talk and this is probably more about the linguistic theft stuff but even think about the abortion issue right it used to be even called pro-choice and it was like i'm for somebody's right to choose which is turning it into a positive but also they take it a step further and make it a justice issue right this is now Mm -hmm. Um, reproductive justice, right? If a woman finds herself pregnant, you know, that's gonna be a different outcome than than a man who impregnated somebody, who that's not really gonna affect his daily life that much. So she should have the same right as him for it not to affect her daily life. Therefore, she has the right, it's a justice issue for her to be able to abort her baby. And it's all this linguistic theft language thing that makes Mm -hmm. it sound, who wouldn't wanna be for reproductive justice? That sounds good but it just means yeah. a woman's right to abort her child. It doesn't actually mean what it sounds like. Like, Where's the reproductive justice for the baby in the womb, right? Right,
0: mm-hmm. right, right, right. Uh, and that's, you know, th- this this conversation's reminding me so much of, uh, um, is, it, is it Nietzsche's, uh, the madman, you know, runs into the city, it, the light is on, everyone can see the sun's up, but he's got a lantern and he's like, we've killed God, we've killed God. And, and everyone's, or, you know, you know, laughing or God is dead. Right. Where is he? Where is he? He comes in asking for where God is. And people are asking, well, did he go on vacation? Did he go on a far land? He goes, no, he's dead. We've killed him. You can, you can smell the decomposing flesh, but he makes this quote in there that I'll, I'll butcher. I'll get close to it. But he says something to the effect of we have to become God to be worthy of it. He talks about like trying to wash away the blood with, you know, uh, uh sponges like how can we how can we you know soak up the ocean we have to become god to be worthy of it and the culture that we're seeing right now is like i've got to be true to my authentic self and everyone's has to be true to their authentic self and you have to vote in agreement with someone else's like like if i want everyone to vote the way that i that will help me right then and if they're not doing that then they don't love me and every person is interpreting. Reality through that lens, we're all going to be at war with each other. We're going to create a pantheon of gods just trying to slay one another because we are the center of the universe. We are the standard of love. We're determining what love looks like by our own personal. And and people don't understand this causes. absolute destruction with objectivity society as a, as a whole will completely collapse because everyone is self-centered and I, i'm curious alissa alisa sorry i keep slipping with your name alisa can you tell me like do you do you have hope for like the west and the way that we're kind of slipping into complete subjectivism like does it get better um or is it just going to get worse progressively
2: I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I, I've i thought about that question a lot. Part of me wants to hope that the up-and-coming generation is going to see how insane this all is and how chaotic culture is and just be like totally rebel against that. I'm already seeing seeds of that when I go and speak at high schools where, you know, this Gen Z generation is very interesting in that they're very engaged with these questions. They don't have a lot of the baggage that maybe we might have approaching some of these questions. And so I, I sort of, that kind of gives me hope. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know because you have the French Revolution, you see where some of these ideas led to complete bloodshed throughout history. And are we heading that way? Gosh, I hope not. I, I pray that we're not, but we possibly are. We've, we've seen in history how these ideas play out. And that's a scary thought for a culture that seems hell-bent on ignoring the historical outcomes of some of these ideas. Um, so I don't know, I guess time will tell. I like to, to think and pray in a hopeful way that this whole deconstruction phenomenon, that all of this um, absolute insanity in, in approaching categories of what humans are and all these types of different things, I like to have hope that that's gonna be a real fertile seedbed for, uh, revival. I'm praying for that. I, I think that we've seen God also do that throughout history. So it's mm-hmm. anyone's guess. Um, mm-hmm. But hopeful about what I see coming up with uh, a lot of Gen Zers who are they're they're just really open to talking about these things. Whereas I think people at our generation, it's like we just we fight about it on social media or we you know there's this weird I don't know they're just like they just talk about it and so hopefully mm-hmm. they'll rebel against all the craziness. I don't know. We'll see.
0: I mean, it's, it's that, that idea that these, these things have actual consequences, right? Like objectivity, when we have objectivity and we're like, Hey, I don't want to listen to the moral law. I don't want to listen to the, uh, you know, what, what is objectively good or true or beautiful. We we say things like truth is relative or your truth or beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or that's good for you, but it's not good for me. And we just, we get so, um, we we so get disconnected from the consequences of that philosophy and if it lets me kind of live my life, however I want for a season and everyone's living their life however they want for a season i'm i'm with you i hope that the next generation can just see the consequences of their actions and and that as they're grap- grasping for objectivity that the church has a foundation for these kinds of transcendent transcendentals of what's good true and beautiful and again i think people if you, if you haven't started already elise's book is perfect for this because it really makes these things accessible and tangible for people who, who've never really gone okay objective truth is like it's going to be the new thing when evangelizing the lost um, because they don't even know that sin is sin anymore. Like there, there's no conceptual, uh, you know, registry in their mind that that there is an evil because they're calling good evil and evil good all the time. Uh, it's all groupthink, sheeple. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Michael, I, I heard that you had a question. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going on cultural uh, rants.
1: Well, I mean, I think even even in the question that you just asked, Elisa, Josh, it. It makes me think of, of the the next cultural so called truth or value that uh, that we were going to address, which is you should put yourself first. And Alisa, uh, you quoted Glennon Doyle, and it was this. I actually just want to read this because this is this is unbelievable that someone would say this. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's her justification for divorce divorcing her husband uh, to marry a woman, and she says mothers have martyred themselves in children's names since the beginning of time. We've lived as if she who disappears the most loves the most. We have been conditioned to prove our love by slowly ceasing to exist. What a terrible burden for children to bear, to know that they are the reason their mother stopped living. What a t- terrible burden for daughters to bear, to know that if they choose to become mothers, this will be their fate too. Young suggested there is no greater burden on, uh, on a child than the unlived life of a parent. I would never again settle for a relationship or life less beautiful than the one I'd want for my child. I divorce Craig because I am a mother and I have responsibilities. Uh, So in other words, her, I'm going to divorce Craig. I'm going to leave my kids and and pursue this relationship with a woman because I have to do what is in here no matter what, which kind of goes with this value of you should put yourself first. Here's what Rachel Hollis says. You should be the very first of your priorities. She also says you're meant to be the hero of your own story. So it's like the very inversion of the gospel. No longer is Jesus the hero, but I'm the hero, and I have to go and just and live my life and do my thing as an example for my kids. and. And mm-hmm. Josh, the reason it made me think of your question is that this philo- this philosophy, this worldview dies out with those who live it yep. because they destroy their families. They leave no generations. Most of them choose to not even have kids. They go against the command, be fruitful and multiply. It's like that Newsweek the, article I saw. beast who eats uh, the whore of Babylon. Yeah, there you go. So anyway, but... But people are are making choices that is it, it's like killing their worldview. Whereas religious people, people who love Jesus, we're we're out we're living a lifestyle where we're actually trying to make disciples and be good people, and uh, and this actually multiplies through generations. But here here is what is just beyond me, Elise and, and maybe you can just speak into this. How is how is put yourself first, even being marketed by Christian bookstores. I mean, how how is this even catching on with any Christian? How are, how are we falling for put yourself first? Is there some truth in it that's really catching us? I, I don't know, help us out.
2: Well, okay, so I have so many thoughts right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. just, you know, for clarity on the Glenn and Joel story, she did not leave her kids. Um in fact, she portrays on social media like everything's great. You know, the kids you would think, now she hasn't overtly said this, but you would think from reading the book and looking on social media, the kids were this is just great. Like the greatest thing that ever happened to them too. You'd think it was just like everything, everybody's great. Everything's Mm -hmm. perfect the way it should be. And, you know, so there's, there's a bit of uh, that going on too, but to your question, why are Christians vulnerable to this? I wonder if it's not because you know it's like the pendulum there's like pendulum swings right the church does one extreme thing and then people react with the you know opposite extreme I think there, I, I see this kind of in in the older generation a little bit of Christians where there was almost this idea that you completely disappear totally and you just like ring yourself out serving everybody else and you put yourself mm-hmm. absolutely last on the list and you don't even take care of yourself and you know and and I think that it could be maybe an overreaction to that sort of mentality mm. because certainly um, to live healthy lives we take we need to take care of ourselves i but i think that the point of taking care of yourself eating food eating healthy food exercising um having energy to do things you're doing this for the purpose of being able to serve others right so there's going to be a bit of a balance even jesus retreated right he went up by himself and and prayed and and spent time with the father to recharge uh you know obviously he was being drained all the time I and mean, people needing things from him all the time so he models for us a good a good theology of rest and sort of refueling and i think that's very important um and so i wonder if it's not just an overreaction to some of the the mentality of some of the older generation that approaches christianity like you know, never do anything for yourself, just everything's for other people. So there's like this this overreaction. That could be what makes the church yeah. vulnerable, but I also think people are vulnerable to it because it sounds really great. You know? I mean, when when yeah. I have permission from an author to if I'm kind of bored in my marriage. And I have permission, not just permission, but she's actually telling me it's the morally right thing to do. This is what actually would make me a good mother to go ahead and get out of that situation so that I can pursue my deepest happiness and model that for them. I mean, that is a very tempting message for a lot of people, because
0: that's true. and,
2: all, and I, there's so much tied into this too. I think even our culture's approach to what marriage even is, right? All the Disney movies in the 90s rom-coms convinced us that marriage is about finding that soulmate and then ultimately mm-hmm. having relational happiness with another person forever. Like that's the point of marriage. That's the reason people get married, which really isn't the biblical reason. God created marriage as uh, a way of stabilizing Um, the home and society for children, right? He gave the woman and the man one half of a reproductive system. That should give us a massive clue as to what he intended for that child's development and raising. And so marriage was, uh, of course, a union and one flesh. You become one, and that stabilizes everything and gives kids what they need growing up. But you know, our culture has switched that where it's and that's why in, you know, biblical marriage, you stick it out when you're not just, you know, mm-hmm. totally fulfilled hap- and happy for a couple of years. Or I've watched so many of the people in my life go through 10 year dry spots in their marriage where they're just not that hot for each other for 10 years. But you know what? They push past it. They keep their vow. And then that gets rekindled. And then there's phases mm-hmm. like that. But you, you stick it out and you stay for... Ultimately, to fulfill the purpose of what marriage is, which is to, to bring stability to everything. But when you adopt the idea that marriage is really just about finding your deepest happiness with another person, well, that's going to fizzle out with every single person you try that with at some point. And so that leads to instability. Um, so there's just so much tied into where people, I don't think people are really thinking about the underpinnings of why they're accepting some of these messages. And I think that can be true for the church as well.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that you you kind of, Touched on that that piece of a, it's important that you be happy. You got to search for your own happiness, um, and that's more subjectivized. But by some who who believe that there might be something objective, and they're pulling out, they're pulling to a place to say, "Man, God just wants me to be happy." Like we we turn the system upside down so that God serves us, like a genie and a lamp. There's a quote from your book by Matthew. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, a rogue, uh, Michael. You wouldn't help me with that. I I can't. How do you pronounce that last Uh-oh. name?
1: Is it? (laughs) Well, uh, 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 oregano? Depends on where you're looking. Okay, (laughs) Matthew. Aragonese? I don't know. Okay, I'm I'm I, thrilled I that you know have a name. hard time
0: with it. I'm dyslexic. I just assume everyone can read <laughs> yes. everything. And when I see words like that, I go, man, I don't know. Okay, so uh, Matthew, he says this. He says, uh, to say we can learn something from suffering is to give su- uh, suffering too much value and meaning. Suffering does not transform. Suffering dehumanizes. Suffering is evil. Like, that's a wild thought that, like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it is. it is so... Again, anti-truth. There's not a single like therapist worth his salt that doesn't think that you know uh, 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 confrontation of your fear actually gets you over fear. It makes you a better person. Like adopting responsibility makes you better. Like like suffering is a good thing. Objectively, it's good. Better people come out of uh, uh, of of confronting that trauma, confronting that of av- uh, that abuse. Uh, it's it's. It is an anti-truth. I'm curious, Like again, uh, what would be your thoughts on this idea that God just wants us to be happy?
2: Well, this speaks to kind of that fundamental worldview question of what is the meaning of life, right? If we operate from the fundamental assumption that happiness is the purpose of life, it's it's what gives life meaning is happiness, well, then we are going to only pursue the types of scenarios and situations that make us the most deeply happy. And we're going to discard experiences and circumstances that push against that. Um, And just again, like in this book, I I love to look at things from just a common sense level. Like we're not even opening the Bible yet, but let's just practically look at the practical outcome from that. Just look around at everybody in your life who has suffered greatly and yet has clung to Christ. They're, Mm. they're, They're deeper than the rest of us. They're more compassionate than the rest of us. They have a deeper understanding and wisdom on certain topics than the rest of us. They're more able to minister to others who go through those things than we are. They actually express a deeper, more abiding joy. I think Rod Dreher did a great job uh, demonstrating this in his book, Live Not by Lies, where he interviewed Christians who had survived communist regimes in the Soviet bloc and and, in Eastern Europe. And he he noted about them that they have a, a deeper joy. There's something about them. That is just more stable, more uh, and and more wise, right? And and so suffering produces those consequences in people. Um, now, certainly, there are legitimately traumatic. I, I it was hard not to go off a rabbit trail on what you said earlier about the word trauma, because that definitely is a word that has come to mean just any sort of discomfort, right? But legitimately traumatic experiences um, can be very damaging, certainly. But this is where the, to have a good theology of suffering is just so much better than than what mm-hmm. people who would tell you to avoid that would would have to offer. Because what the Bible teaches is that, yeah, I mean, there is gonna be trouble in this world. We are gonna have experiences that legitimately traumatize us and might even cause damage emotionally. But here's the great news. Like, that's not where our value lies. That's not even the point of life. That's not, um, you know, and, and when we go through those, the promise, I, I think about this more as I get older, God's promise that he's working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I mean, I look back at legitimately uh, traumatizing experiences in my life. I haven't had as many as a lot of people, certainly. All that's kind of relative to what people's experience are. But the ones that I've had, um, if I in my natural self could go back to those experiences, I would have avoided those. I would not have walked through that. But yet Mm -hmm. God has turned all of those for my good. Um, I'll just give you one quick example. So my son uh, is undiagnosed, but most likely on the spectrum, and he's he's okay with me talking about it. Um, but it, we've had a lot of challenges, a lot of difficulties that at times just seemed impossible. But I remember back when I was in Zoe Girl and people would kind of approach me and I would kind of judge people who had a different social understanding than I did and i would kind of get jaded about it but because of my experience with my son i not only when i can tell somebody's got something a little bit maybe you know divergent about the way they approach social situations not only do i have compassion for that but it actually fills my heart with love for them because i know my son so well and i know that what his challenges have been and i know the struggles that he's had and it has filled me with compassion and love for others who might have similar struggles. People who, other people who haven't had an experience like that might just sort of, you know, pass off as weird or this or that or something like that. But like, I'm filled with God's heart for these people. But that's because of an experience of difficulty um, and and even at times suffering that our family went through. Uh, And so, I mean, that's just a mild example. And when you, Mm -hmm. you know, when when you think about even deeper trials people have had and what that enables them to do. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But ultimately speaking, if we just think that life's about being happy, then we're gonna miss the bullseye of the depth of life, the lessons we can learn in suffering, the beauty of suffering. I mean, Paul, look at Paul, stoned, whipped, shipwrecked, uh, mocked. He was, uh, you know, suffered the elements of cold and hunger. And and yet he said, these. Light this is Paul, light and momentary afflictions are not worthy to, to not worthy to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. I mean that's powerful stuff. that's deep stuff mm-hmm. that suffering produces. And so um, this whole idea that we should be happy. I mean look at how this is playing out in colleges, right? We're validating every feeling that college kids have to the point where I was talking with a, a professor a college professor and she was saying, a lot of these kids have never had, to um, be in a scenario in which their feelings were not affirmed. And so they literally don't know how to handle it, to be disagreed with or to be told, no, you have to take the test that you feel traumatized by having to take. And so it's making Mm -hmm. us weaker, Mm -hmm. it's making us less flexible and more vulnerable to, um, I think, uh, a lot of the depression we're seeing and just the skyrocketing levels of anxiety um, so there, I waxed on about that for a long time, so I'll throw it back to you.
1: <laughs> okay. No, that's, that's good. Well, I, I want to honor your time, Alisa. So maybe I'll ask just one more question and then we'll try to kind of sum things up and, and definitely encourage you guys to, uh, to buy Alisa's most recent book, both of her books really, but, uh, she'll, she'll walk through more of these cultural lies and respond to them. But I was interested in your story on this one, Alisa, about, uh, it's the lie of girl power is real power. And you talked about how you had this chip on your shoulder about being a woman. And you even talked about how you you sort of idolized the women in the Bible that were maybe extra heroic. And uh, and so I'd love for you to maybe talk through that a little bit. What was the chip on the shoulder? Maybe help us understand what you meant uh, when you were saying that and then how God brought you through that to, to where you are now.
2: Yeah, well, so this was a chapter that I was—I really wanted to write because I was thinking back to when I was in high school and just even just after high school. For some reason, this, I did. I developed a chip on my shoulder about men. I just wanted to see men fail. I wanted to see women do things better than men. And I don't know if it was just I was culturally catching the modern feminism that was around me. Because um, I I had pretty good experiences with men as a child. I mean, my dad was prob- probably way more egalitarian than I'll ever be, <laughs> even to this day. Um, you know, probably thought I could have been the president of the United States. Just I felt totally affirmed by my dad and my grandpa adored me and You know so i don't know where it came from but i just sort of adopted this idea that like man anything men can do girls can do better that whole thing and so i even started to read the bible that way where i would read the stories of deborah you know and and jl oh i loved jl who you know did the tent peg in the guy's head and won the war for everybody but i wouldn't i wasn't reading those stories through the lens of look how look at god's view of women and how much value he assigns to women and how um, what what cool roles he let women play in history. That wasn't really the approach. The approach was more like, ah, oh, Deborah, you know, she had a man who wasn't, couldn't, he was too scared to do it, so she had to do it. And, and it was like this really kind of bitterness that was growing in my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, I had an experience where I asked somebody to pray for me and it was immediately uprooted and that does not always happen. Like I've prayed about things, I have I still have things I've been praying about for 15 years that the root is like, you know, I still have to fight it, right? But I just didn't have to fight it after that. It was like God just completely plucked out the root at that moment and that really got me thinking about why I, I was thinking that way. And then I was just taking a look at um, how culture really sadly has made men the standard for what is good. And so really to be a f- complete woman, you have to really like be like a man. but and then kind of asking the question well why isn't it the opposite why why is it that women uh now I'm you know getting in the I don't want to get too in the weeds here and get myself in trouble just making disclaimers I'm not saying women shouldn't work outside the home I'm not at all saying every woman has to become a mother to you know fulfill her ultimate purpose but if you just look at the way our bodies are designed we're designed for childbirth right that that is what God entrusted to women and yet we see that as in our culture as this sort of Ah, eh, this kind of this this bummer of a thing you have to do when really you could be sitting in a cubicle like the men all day, which you know doesn't appeal to me at all. But um, why do, why do we see it this way? Why do we see the man sitting in the cubicle, you know, or or in the corner office even? Why do we see that as more valuable than possibly staying home with a child that we're raising? And I, and I even say, like, has it ever occurred to anyone that God literally entrusted like men, you know, kind of toil the ground at the, the curse in, in Eden and women have, you know, struggle and pain in childbirth. But literally God is entrusting women with the entire gen- next generation of men. Like every man comes out of a woman's body and is, uh, you know, d- nurtured and taught by a woman uh, from the start. I mean, why do we see that as less valuable? That That boggles my mind. But our culture has convinced us that you know motherhood's <laughs> yeah, kind of a drag. Yeah. It's just this other thing you got to deal with. But ultimately, there's such value in it. But we only think this way when we make men the standard of good, and that's kind of what I think mm. modern feminism—a misstep of it—they've done that.
1: Mm. Okay, makes me think of make uh, a lot of good I points. Gotta, a lot of good I got to throw this quote out by Chesterton, dude. He says, "Feminism is the muddled idea that women are free when they serve their employers, but slaves when they help their husbands." Oh. Mm. Oh, Chesterton, that dude. Chesterton.
2: Gotta love him. <laughs> just gotta
1: get it chest, uh, right? Yeah, speaking of Chesterton, I actually have one more quote. And so we're going to kind of summarize uh, just some thoughts on this. Josh, I'll ask you to summarize. And then, Alisa, if you have any just sort of take-home thoughts that you want people to walk away with, I'll give you just a moment to kind of uh, think of what that would be. But I'm going to run with a, a different Chesterton quote, okay? All you Chesterton fans out there, here's what he says. Uh, He says, a heresy is at best a half-truth, but usually even less than that. A heresy is a fragment of the truth that that is exaggerated at the expense of the rest of the truth and i i think that is just what we keep hitting on again and again and again with these things like you know when it's like your first priority is yourself i mean there's there's certainly a reality guard your heart it is from this is the wellspring of life proverbs four twenty three you know there, there's certainly like elisa talked about you have to you know jesus withdrew at times he refreshed himself and, and the same principle holds to all of the truths that we talked about or The or really lies that we talked about that there is a little kernel of truth that is expanded to the nth degree at the expense of the rest of the truth. And so, I think my exhortation to everybody would be we need to think critically. Just because someone is telling you what you want to hear doesn't mean that it's actually true. And be aware of what our culture is saying right now this extreme form of expressive individualism where truth is defined in here it's what I want, it's my desires, not out there not any sort of external authority not even my own body can tell me who i am because i decide who i am i'm the boss all this kind of stuff guys this is just a this is a cultural thing and uh and we are to be not conformed to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind uh with scripture and uh, the truth of scripture and so i uh, want to encourage everybody to think critically uh but to do so without becoming a critic where we just sit, sit around yeah, and just criticize good. everybody but think critically without becoming a critic i think would be my closing thought josh what about you
0: i i just say that i think that uh though we can we can have conversations like this and find i think helpfully and rightfully have conversations like this and see areas where okay it doesn't make sense for us to think america is such an evil place and then really be super pro immigration because then you just want people to come into a country where the country is evil. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. And and then like, hey, let's make abortion a trans issue. How that makes sense, I'm not sure. And and, you know, let's have conversations about women's rights. And then let's give those women's rights to men. And like there's just so many conflating thoughts and just pointing out all the errors and like looking at all the bad guys, you know, using air quotes here and talking about how um, you know, America's going to hell in a handbasket. We can walk away really um angry or fearful about our nation but i think also having conversations like this can actually give us a lot of hope because we can see how easily there's just standing on on sand that's shifting and and i what was that quote you know like i'd rather have a, I'd rather have a a shack on the rock than a you know a mansion on the sand and and that's what's happening culture has built a mansion on the sand and we have an opportunity to stand on a rock it it might be meager, it might be humble, but to be able to proclaim truth, and I think that it's a layup. Like it's actually pretty easy right now. Um, I had a neighbor kid next door; he's a witch. Sit down next to me uh, late at night after put all my kids to bed. I'm just sitting outside on my lawn chair, and he has to sit next to me and and talk throughout the night. And so we we like talk to like 1 a.m. But uh, neighbor kid's like 18, he's trying to get his GED, and he's like talking about his dad. His dad beat him, and his Blankety blank girlfriend stole his money and and then when he asked me what I did for a living he's like oh yeah 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 I, uh well uh I'm very spiritual too and you know we started talking about morality and truth is relative it's like you don't believe that you said your dad beat you and your expletive girlfriend stole from you and you expect me to share your worldview you. it was so easy to get to the the heart of truth. in a a community that doesn't have philosophical structures. They just believe everything is relative. And I think that it's extremely powerful for Christians to realize this now and be hopeful that evangelism is probably as powerful, as more powerful than it's ever been because we're not having to fight philosophical systems that have been in existence for thousands of years. (laughs) We're wrestling with people who are standing on sand that they invented and adopted yesterday. So uh, I, I am, I'm hopeful that evangelism is going to be easier in days going forward. But uh, uh, Alisa, tell us about some of your closing thoughts, what you want people thinking about meditating on as they're walking away from an interview like this.
2: Well, that was a hugely encouraging story. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Um, I, I think, um, Yeah, I love that. I love that approach to the hope of, it's almost like relativism kind of gives people a blank slate because it's, if somebody's truly open to discussing it, they can see how it fails. And even those who say, well, I'm not a relativist, but then, you know, they kind of are and you, and you could demonstrate that by, you know, asking some great questions like you did with that kid. Um, but yeah, I think that um, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot, and I even posted this on Facebook yesterday because it was just heavy on my heart last night. But I love the story of Elijah in the broom tree. You know, he's come from Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven. I mean, this grand thing happens and then Jezebel just threatens his life. You know, she says, "I'll I'll make your life like the lives of all these other ones. And um, had killed some prophets, and and he's he's depressed, right? He's like despairing of his life, and he crawls up under the broom tree, and he just asks God to take his life, just just end this, right? And um, what what's so powerful m- to me about that is because of God's response to him that you know he's got seven thousand people that have not bowed the knee and not kissed Baal, and. I just thought how encouraging to know that God knows where everybody's knees have been and who what what everybody's mouths have kissed, right? And our goal as Christians, it's hard in this culture that's very tribalistic, you know, we want to we don't want to have a bad reputation, we don't want people to think badly of us, but we need to be pleasing God alone because he's he's always going to have the 7000 set aside for himself even if we don't see it. I mean, Elijah thought he was the only one left, right? And sometimes it can feel that way. But just know God's God always keeps a remnant, and we need to be doing everything we're doing to please Him and Him alone, despite what people might say about us. And that's a that's an uncomfortable idea for a lot of Christians who haven't had to live in a world like that for very long, because like you said, it's just like five minutes ago, all this kind of ramped up to the extent that it's at today. So yeah, just, you know, it, it, choose. If God is God, serve Him. If Baal is Baal, serve Him. But let's make a choice and then live it, and not worry about what people are thinking.
1: Amen. That's good, Elisa. Thank you so much, and I just want to encourage our viewers one more time and listeners uh, one more time. Buy Elisa's books. Check out her podcast. Subscribe to it, and. Man, shoot. For that matter, download some old Zoe girl uh, Christian (laughs) albums. Amen. Uh, Can you you download those? I'm sure you can. Back in those days, it was all on CD. But um, anyway, well, guys, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Actually, one quick correction I want to make on something I said. That second quote of Chesterton was actually someone talking about Chesterton. It wasn't a direct quote. Here nor there, just wanted to note that because we care about accuracy here. Unlike some of the people that we were criticizing today, oh Uh, (laughs) man, that's one last jab. That was a little bit of a jab. I'm like, don't be a (laughs) critic, and then I say that okay. So, guys, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. And if you've been blessed by our content, consider, uh, consider donating. We're a crowdfunded ministry. You can do a one time donation through PayPal or a recurring one through Patreon, both of those are in the link. Uh, both of those links are in the description on YouTube. So uh, you guys just check it out and God bless you. Thank you all so much and have a great week.